right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here, our traditional holiday medley episode, end of year recap, looking back at a bunch of our interviews from the year. This is almost entirely live free. I believe it might even be technically live free. First first interview, we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but uh, none of our recap stuff, none of the distance stuff. It's just straight interviews that we've done in the past year featuring John Rahm, Smiley Kaufman, Trevor Emmelman, you know, it. Podrick Harrington, there's a, there's a lot to get to. I'll get to all of them here individually, but uh, this is the one time a year we do ask people, if you have a friend that maybe isn't into podcasts or doesn't listen to the show, this is always a great episode to share with somebody. Uh, if you're not into this, then you're probably not into the into the, into the the podcast, which is also totally fine, but uh, and also this is a, a chance for, hey, if you didn't listen to every episode this year, one, we don't blame you. We put out a lot this year, uh, and two, hopefully this is a reminder to maybe go back and listen to one you already listened to, uh, to hear it again, or uh, one that... Uh, maybe you skipped that uh, you hear something intriguing that would make you want to listen to the rest of it. So other request, of course, uh, this time of year, if you go in and rate and review our show in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast, it helps us greatly. And uh, we try to only ask for that once a year. So uh, no ads in this one. This is straight up a labor of love. And we greatly appreciate all the feedback we always get on this episode. First clip is somewhat appropriate in light of recent news. Uh, it was our first big player interview of 2023, episode 634 with John Rom, who at the time was still 100% committed to the PGA Tour. Uh, this clip runs probably about five minutes, and there's some statements in here that will make his, uh, of course, eventual decision to join Liv seem very curious, in addition to uh, numerous other public statements that Rom has made since Liv emerged. But again, we'll keep the Liv Tour, you know, PGA Tour golf ball rollback discussion to an absolute minimum for the rest of the pod. But here's John Rom uh, from back in mid January. And I've heard a lot of players refer to reconciliation, whatever that looks like, you know, uh, come to some kind of agreement, some kind of, you know, what that looks like. I've always struggled to picture that. I think I'm, you know, potential reconciliation. I'm starting to crystallize a little bit of how it could work. But in your mind, what is a, what is an idea of how the two can coexist and kind of stop the, the, the back and forth? Uh, I have a small thought on it, but I'm not sure if it would work. But the idea is if the PGA Tour is working towards changing Right. This year, the fall series events won't count for the FedEx Cup points. Right. If we ever get to a point where PGA Tour tournaments is like before 2007 is January 1st to last week of August when the Tour Championship is done. No more official PGA Tour events after that. You could get to a situation where if Liv only has 10 to 14 events, they could have those 10 to 14 events in September through December and never coincide with any other PGA Tour event again. Because what they're doing right now is obviously putting out their tournaments against the weakest PGA Tour tournaments and acting like they're better. Like they might be a better product. Well, put it up against Rev, put it up against the player, see see who wins, right? That's my point of view on that. So instead of getting again on a petty battle of who's better or who's not, you could essentially end up in that situation. Let them take the fall, we take the rest of the year, there you go, done. Kind of like the summer league in basketball, right? You have it in summer, NBA doesn't really care. Um, you can't really do it in a lot of sports, but you can do it in golf, right? Uh, now, with that said, that would put the European Tour in a difficult position. But 
that's the only solution I see right now. Because I don't see a way where you're going to have players bouncing back and forth who are like, oh, we're finishing the Tour Championship tomorrow. I'm part of the, you know, tomorrow I'm part of the, the high flyers and playing. <laughs> I don't know where. So that, that, to, to clarify that, you don't see, you're not saying play in the fall so PGA Tour players can also go play and live in no. the fall. Right. No. God, no. I think you should make a choice. Right. I know we're independent contractors, but man. Uh, plus, if you want to play, go ahead. We're playing 20 events, plus another 14 35 34 tournaments a year that would be any of you playing Ryder Cup that'll be 35 that's a lot of tournaments to play especially going around the world in the fall so I don't think anybody would choose to do that but I don't think any like I don't think the PJ Tour would go for that either they're not going to allow somebody to sign a hundred million dollar deal with them to then also be double dipping on the PJ Tour I don't think they would and do you agree with that philosophy as a PGA Tour player and as a professional golfer? I mean, I, I think a lot of the live players have have made the case and have, have have said we should be able to double dip. We should be able to do both of those things. For the listeners' sake, can you explain either whether or not you agree with that and why that might be the case? Since it's not a possibility, I haven't given it much thought. I really haven't. I think a lot of this, again, gets into the independent contractor definition right but when you sign with the pj tour you sign i think i don't know if the word the, the word that i'm gonna say i don't know legal words okay <laughs> but you sign some type of exclusivity deal right they own the right to your image that's probably the first problem that <laughs> right the pr- first problem you have there and again you need permission from the PGA Tour to go play in other tours, which have granted in the past, they've just chosen not to do it with Liv, which is fully in the right, I believe. So I don't know, I don't necessarily think you should be able to do both, right? I'm not judging anybody. Feel free, go to Liv, take the money, do whatever you want. I'm not gonna judge if, if that's your choice, but double dipping and doing both seems, uh, you know, just to me, it doesn't seem like it's the right thing to do. But again, we can, we, I can disagree with players on it. They can think whatever they want, I'm fine with it. I just don't think, you should be doing both, right? I don't know. I said right now, I don't see a possibility of that happening. And I just, right now, I don't think it would be the right thing to do in the future. We don't know how things are going to shape up, but it doesn't seem like a possibility either. Well, that's what any chance I get to connect the dots of you've signed away your image, right? But the PGA Tour has gone and sold that to a lot of different sponsors and, and television partners to say, here's what John Rahm is worth. And also, he just won this tournament, and here is $2.7 million, John Rahm, for us putting this tournament together for you and marketing this and selling this. And it's- Let's also not forget, which I think a lot of people forget, you're getting those contracts by Lyft because of the platform that PJ Tours allowed you to play in. 100%. Period. Period. So you owe, obviously, your talent takes you far, far, but to an extent, you owe that platform to the PGA Tour. So to still use that platform to stay relevant and make more money in the other place just doesn't seem right. And that's right? where... If you're confident, just wait till the other platform gets bigger and your worth is whatever it is. That's... Right? I mean, I wouldn't be known anywhere if I wasn't the PGA Tour. Very simple. Next up from the pro, Max Homa, for the first of two times in this medley episode. Uh, this clip was from late January when Max offered up some uh, revealing comments on the introduction of a sports psychologist to his team, uh, adjusting to a changing golf swing as he's aged. And he's just another very open and honest conversation with Max, who's, of course, always our favorite guest. Episode 637, John Maxwell Homa. 
you said something about techniques you're you're working on for under pressure. I'm I literally had that on my list to talk to you about in terms of how, how you handle that, how you practice that, how do you possibly prepare for that? It blows my mind watching you guys hit shots with all the people around that mean the shots that mean so much. What what are you doing there, and how have you how have you seen that be effective? See what's what's odd is like the Sundays and the the I guess the the tip your brain, stressful, you know, high pressure shots. Those are not the ones that give me trouble. <laughs> it's the lead up to a Thursday of a big event or a Friday or whatever that may be. So like for how my brain kind of has worked is if I get myself in a contention Saturday, Sunday, I know I'm playing well. So it's fun. Like it's a mm. joy. Like I know it's more of a, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go show off type Thing. I think that's why I've been successful, you know, in the hunt and in these events, you know, I, I've, I've played quite well in the final groups. I've closed out tournaments. And I think that's just the way I, I operate. I need to see, I need validation. And Joe had brought it up uh, at Congaree on the 17th hole on Sunday, right before we were about to take a big break. And he said, Hey, you know, I got, I have something I want to bring up, you know, uh, I think it will help you. I think you should talk to a sports psychologist. I have tried that before way in the past, didn't like it. So he's like, just try it. He goes, I really think it'll help you. He goes, I'm, and, and he, he did it perfectly. And, I, and the reason I bring up what hole was on uh, is because I think it, was a mo- it will be a momentous part of my journey in this game and a momentous moment in a way because I've never really worked on my mental game the way he was talking about it. He said, I'm not telling you this because I think you're broken. I'm telling you this because I think it could boost us up real high uh, in this game of golf. And I don't know why, but when he presented it to me like that, it didn't feel like sometimes I think in a weird way, as much as I'm very pro people seeing therapists and speaking to psychologists, when someone suggests it, you're like, wait, I've been better. Like you like get defensive. And the way he put it, it was like, I'm just like kind of not tapping into a, uh, a big facet of the game. I think, you know, skill wise, talent wise, a lot of guys on tour might, you know, I would myself included, like we've been working at this for so long, there's only so much incrementally I can get better at in this game, truly. And there's a ton you can do in other areas. Uh, Some people struggle on Sundays. Some people struggle like me on Thursdays. Some people struggle on Saturdays. So everyone's got their thing. So I started talking to somebody. We talk about life and all this stuff, but I have like an understanding of where I get off and how I practice it. I practice it at home. You know, when I'm when I have a shot, I'm, I'm a lot more like internal when I'm and, and and I guess aware when I'm playing like a fun round at home. If I start to have a feeling, I don't like just say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's a Tuesday. I'm like, all right, let's pretend this is a golf tournament. You're feeling this already. And you might feel this, you know, you're going to feel this again at Torrey Pines. So tap into it. And then it's like, okay, well, why do you feel this way? Do you think? And then like break it down and like, okay, so how are you going to go about, you know, overcoming that feeling? And like, practicing that way and it was fun to play the century because it was the first event well I guess the hero was the first event but the hero was uh early on when I was talking to the sports psychologist and uh it was also coming off like you know four weeks post baby and I hadn't really been practicing a lot so I was trying to be it was almost a learning experience for both of us because I could I felt very small and all the bad things came up because I didn't play well but it was a lot of it was you know just not playing well so it was fun to go to the century and be like, oh, I'm going to put these things to work. I'm going to practice these things. And I saw it in a crazy amount, you know, Thursday, Friday for me, I, on the leaderboard didn't play very well. I was in 26, 27 place, but 
I would usually turn that into 35th by it's not an attitude like moping around. It would have been just me trying to hit a hero shot or uh, me feeling insecure. And instead I was like, you're playing great balls, not going in the hole, uh, maximize these two days. And then all of a sudden Saturday I go out there and black out. And all of a sudden, you know, I wasn't in the golf tournament, but I was in the, I was in the hunt for a great finish. Uh, so that was fun just seeing stuff like that. So it's fun to practice that in a tournament, but that's how I practice it at, at home is when I have a feeling, I, I try not to just like shrug it off. Like I normally would, because you know, any day at home on a Tuesday, you hit a bad shot and you, it's so easy to just be like, well, this doesn't matter, you know, because it, it doesn't to the grand scheme of things, but it's hard to practice mental stuff. So you got to take, take those chances or take those opportunities when they come. And like, you know, I was, I was talking to her uh, uh, earlier this week and I was saying, Hey, this feels weird right now. And I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, what if this happens at Tory, this, that, or whatever. And she goes, this is good. Go out. Cause I was playing that afternoon. She's like, when you go play this afternoon, practice that, like practice how you would, want to be when you play Wednesday at Torrey Pines. And I was like, oh, cool. And I went out and I saw an, an improvement. And I guess, you know, that that's that's how I've been trying to do it. Uh, again, it's early on, but I've enjoyed this kind of uh, learning experience. I told her early, I was like, the reason I struggle with speaking with pe- speaking to people about this is I've never seen how a mental boost is tangible because it feels so intangible. And she said, my goal for you by the end of this is that you're going to realize that it is tangible, obviously in a figurative sense. And I'm, I felt that a lot at Century. So it's just cool. Uh, you know, wherever this goes is 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 kind of wherever it goes. But uh, noticing little things uh, in tournaments is really fun. And that was the first one I got to really see an improvement and see a result because of it. What's interesting about the mental side is for a long time, I always thought it meant like, oh, just be positive. Just be super positive. Yeah. Like, have a great attitude. That's all it means. Whereas it is a lot more complicated than that. And it takes repetition. And it takes like maintenance it's not something that you just like learn once and you have it you know forever it you know you're going to go through ups and downs of all that but I have kind of a a weird question sometimes like if I'm playing decent golf and I go to the course the next day I still have a question of whether or not it's still there right if you take like three days off of playing golf is there ever a doubt that that it's still there for you I don't know how to ask that question other than like if you're, you know, you you just had a baby, you're taking some time away from golf, and when you go pick those clubs back up, what is that process like of figuring out whether or not you still have it? Is that a, is that a thing at all at your level? It is every single day of my life. So Okay, that makes me feel like a tad better. <laughs> when I land tomorrow in San Diego and I drive uh, over to TPI and I hit my first flush wedge, I will have some form of a sigh of relief. Okay. <laughs> every day, it's every day during a week of a tournament. Um, but I think that's kind of maturing in the game as a professional is realizing that, Hey, you know, I had a weird putting day on Monday. That does not mean I will have a weird putting day on Tuesday. Um, Mm. and and if it happens again on Tuesday, it does not mean that is now my new normal. It's not broken. There's a way to fix it. And it will probably, you're probably closer to it than you think. A lot of that is just experience. You know, anytime I'd have something off, especially early in my career, when I was playing poorly, it would be like a whole rebuild instead of realizing, man, you might be one little tweak away or one feeling away from it being back to as good as it could possibly be. So I, 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 like you said, though, it takes maintenance. Like I need to remind myself that it's not like this thing is it's natural, but yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us feel that way. And I think a lot of us go through that. Like when I hear stories about how Rory won't touch a club for four weeks, I like start sweating, but (laughs) that's like a form of confidence, you know, to me. And, and that's a good thing. But part of, part of it, I don't mind for myself because 
that constant fear gets me up in the morning every day to go practice. And that's part of why I'm good. But it's like, it's blending the two. It's like having the confidence to know you could feel funny and go out and still play great is, is big, but it's also, there's some, some form of the success and, and confidence of being able to take a day or two off uh, or have light days and not think that that is why you won't be successful in, in a, you know, in a week or a month or a year. When we played uh, with Spieth and JT at, at Kapalua, Jordan said something that was really interesting about how it was something along the lines of, I'll never swing the club like I did in 2015 again because my body has changed. Like, it's impossible for me to swing the club in the same way. Like, when I turn, when I have a full rotation, that's a different feel in 2023 than it is in 2015. And that kind of blew my mind. I just never really thought of it that way. It's basically like... He had this incredible run of golf. He fell off a little bit and is now trying to find his way back. And I'm asking this through the lens of you've gone through similar ups and downs. When you were in your down periods, were you trying to find your old swing? And did you end up back at your old swing? Or did were you trying to find new ways to elevate your game? You, you know what I mean? Like, and, and your relationship with a swing changing and a feel changing and not being able to get it back slash do you want it back? Do you want a new feel? I'm curious your relationship uh, through all of that with your golf swing. Yeah, that's a great question because a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. We were searching for, I think we were searching for the feeling I, I've heard Jordan talk about this on your your guys' podcast uh, maybe a year or two ago. You're searching for this feeling by t- doing new moves, I guess. And then that's kind of where it, it, you, you, you're never – not never. You probably won't find that. So Jordan's was different. He was playing poorly, but I don't think that he – he then lost it, but – it, you know, his golf swing was changing a lot. And when your body changes, obviously that is a big thing. I mean, we do it right now. Mark and I, I, I have these swings from Houston, like two years ago, maybe two, three, yeah, two years ago that are my favorite golf swings I ever made. And, you know, it worked. It was, it was like that for a couple of weeks. I was hitting the ball really far and I was driving the hell out of it. And sometimes I'll be looking at it and we'll be dissecting it. Like what is different, this, that, and like whatever. And then finally we'll always land on man, like, maybe we need to remeasure how my shoulder's moving or my elbow's moving or, or whatever, because it's like, maybe that's just like not in the cards right now. And that doesn't mean it's bad. Like I have better right. range of motion now than I did then. And he goes, maybe you just had like the perfect level of stiffness immobility then. And you're like, yeah, you know, that's a good point. And that's where I lean on Mark a lot. He's been good about that. You know, everything starts with like how you're moving and you move back, you know, towards fixing your golf swing or whatever, improving your golf swing after that. Uh, but sometimes we all get caught up in it. Like, I just want to swing it like this again. It, it, I guess Tiger would be the perfect person to learn that from. Is like, as he changed his golf swing, it was almost always around his body and what wasn't working so great. And he's made a career out of each one of those golf swings. So you can make it work, but you need to be in tune with what isn't working. And it's actually helped me on days where I've been stiffer because it's cold or something. I, I'm aware of, okay, you know, I struggle with side bend and like staying in my posture. So I know I have to like overdo that because I'm not going to move as well. My hips aren't going to be as like lubed up. So it's good to be aware of that. Cause now I know, Hey, if I start like flipping at it or it feels funky, I'm just, I'm, I'm limited somewhere, you know, because of the weather or just because of myself. So like little things like that do change. And it, it's funny. Jordan talks about that because 
his golf swing does look very different right now than it did in 2015. Positions are important. They're not the end of the world. And he's bringing the club down in a very good position. So it doesn't like matter as long as you get it in that slot. But chasing something that you can't attain wastes a lot of time. Next up is episode 639. This was interesting for a lot of different reasons as we caught up with Will Zalatoris to talk through his recovery from back surgery and, of course, uh, questions about his you know unique putting motion from close range. But uh, here's Will Zalatoris, episode 639. What I'm most looking forward to talking with you about, people are most looking forward to, to hear the answer on. I need an explanation in your words of your close range putting stroke. I need, I need to understand the strategy, how we got to this, and uh, and and yeah, how do we get here? No, I just I whenever Josh and I have tried to work on too much, I've always had a habit of taking it inside, and so playing in the wind that day and trying to fight my fighting myself a little bit, you know, it is what it is. Like, here's the thing though: is like statistically, like yeah, I need to be better from four to eight, nine feet. I'm not winning any beauty contests, but like. 35th best butter on tour so this year so like There's i don't a lot to talk really about like, here yes <laughs> yeah no so i mean like yeah do i need to get better is it sexy yeah i need to get better and yeah it's it's not the best but like when when it feels good i will take on anybody in the world no matter what range doesn't matter but you know i'm not afraid to go out and hit a few putts off the toe every now and again and and be a little uncommitted to what i'm doing but you know then again it's like I have one out here. I do have a lot of top tens. Like statistically, it's not as bad as it actually looks, which I know is hard to believe for some people. And I know I love getting ripped for it. But at the end of the day, like, like I said, I'll take anybody on any time. Like I need to get better. I need to get better of, you know, taking them more outside. And I've been, I've just done this for the last, I don't know, forever, it seems like. But the beauty of it is, is it's like, if that's the one thing people are going to ridicule me for is essentially, you know, maybe missing a free throw every now and again, I'm happy with where I'm at. So I'll keep working on what I'm doing. Next three clips are all former pros turned broadcasters, starting with Colt Nost, episode 641. He's got a unique backstory, you know, surrounding his amateur career, a uh, fateful decision to turn down an invite to the Masters. When did pro golf enter the picture for you? I mean, when you when you showed up at SMU, it doesn't sound like you thought that was the, where your career was, your your path was headed not, as a freshman. Not even close. I mean, <laughs> I didn't pick up a golf club until I was 13 years old. Seriously? And I grew up, yeah, in a, in a small country town called Pilot Point, Texas. Doesn't have a golf course. 5,000 people in the whole town. I mean, I had 89 people in my high school class. Uh, I joke and say 88 of them are still there. <laughs> I was the only one that got out. But, you know, going to SMU was so lucky. I got an email from the coach very late. Uh, I got two recruiting, uh, I was scheduled two recruiting trips because of my golf coach, Randy Smith, who works with Scotty Scheffler. He is like a dad to me. I've known him forever. He talked teams into looking at me, got a random look from SMU, went down, took a visit. Randy was 10 minutes down the road. I was like, you know what? This is perfect. If I want to do this, like this is where I should be because then I can see Randy at all times. First qualifying round, I shoot 77. And I'm like, holy shit, I am so far in over my head. Like, this isn't this isn't good. And each day got better, better, better. Ended up making the first tournament, finished top 10, never missed a tournament my entire career. But it still wasn't until probably my junior year in college that I thought I could play professional golf when I finally started to win a few times. Then my senior year, obviously everything clicked. I won quite a few times. Played in the Byron Nelson um, when I was in college and was in contention going into the weekend. But it t- it was a lot later than most, I would say. Any wins in that amateur uh, part that were of a special note? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that that whole summer. I mean, starting at the Byron Nelson, just every, playing in a PGA Tour event, 
going out in the summer, trying to make the Walker Cup team. Played great every single week. I don't think I finished outside the top ten the entire summer. Ernie Keeney, uh, Trip Keeney, and and Hank and Kelly's dad told me at the start of the summer that I was going to win the USAM. And I was just like, well, I'm not even in the USAM. <laughs> I, 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 I hope so. I hope you're right. But, you know, he said Olympic Club's perfect for me. Ended up winning the Publix. The best part about winning the Publix, not just getting the Masters invite, but I didn't have to go qualify for the USAM in those 36 36 hole qualifiers. Got to Olympic Club, loved it, and it was just one of those dream weeks. So you win the USAM, and I, I don't remember this part of it, I guess, but you forfeit your major exemptions to turn professional. You never got to play in the Masters by my collection. Any do you any any regret in that? Why why was why did you turn pro when you did? Yeah, you know, at the time there was no regrets. I mean, when I was playing professional golf, I was on the PGA Tour. Everything was great, and I thought I would get there eventually. For me. I mean, I look at it this. I mean, my stock was never higher. Right. I was the number one AM in the world. I was coming off a win at the, at the AM, the Pub Links, went undefeated at the Walker Cup. I got thrown money that, you know, sure. my family wasn't poor. They weren't rich. I mean, we were we were fine. But it was still, it was a big difference for me between staying amateur and turning pro. Like, my mom had taken care of me my entire life. It was time for me to pay her back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so I got starts in the fall that year. I played three PGA Tour events that fall. I was like, man, I, the way I'm playing right now, I mean, I could get in contention and possibly win and be there anyway. Yeah. So it, it was a hard decision. There's no doubt. I mean, the, as a kid, I mean, the one tournament you really remember every single year is the Masters. And, you know, yeah, it hurt that I never played. There's no doubt. Now that I go there every year for CBS, it's awesome. Uh, hoping one day to be on the main broadcast. We'll see what happens with that. But I'll never forget, uh, 2021 was the first time I ever stepped on property. And it was limited patrons. And on Monday, I just went out and walked the grounds by myself. Walked all 18 holes, one through 18. And it was cool. And that's probably the first time it really hit me like hard that I was like, damn, I can't believe I never played in this. Smiley Kaufman joined us for episode 645. His struggles with his own game, you know, have been well documented. But uh, this clip from my interview was enlightening just to see how much a professional can have the same mental hurdles in golf as the rest of us. I'll tell you this. So for about a year, maybe a year and a half, I wouldn't even keep score when I went and played. Like at home, I just wouldn't even keep score because I just didn't want to have a result attached to to golf. I just wanted golf to be fun again. And I think once once I realized, like, oh goodness, I finally stepped away like from from the game for a bit. I'm like, this, I it's a crazy how quickly I started enjoying golf again and just not have like I just wouldn't think about anything over the ball. I'd, I had I knew what I was working on and I didn't ever worry about it. It's like I just didn't attach an emotion to a bad shot. And I was doing that for so long that, and most listeners probably are like nodding their head like, God, yeah, that's me. But yeah, that's, it happens to everybody and it, and not just amateurs, it happens to pros and uh, it can be a, a very fleeting game. And we've seen it time and time and again. Did you ever, um, by any chance this just came to mind, have any, did you ever read about or learn about or ever talk to Ian Baker Finch at all about how uh, some of his struggles or, or his reaction to, you know, kind of going down a bad, bad spiral? You know, you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't very open when I yeah. was during, when I wasn't playing well, I was hardly open enough. Like I would barely open up to my wife about just what I was going through. You know, it, I, I was probably, I just felt like a shell of myself and my personality is very outgoing extrovert. And I felt so introverted and I felt so like monkey on my back when I went to the golf course, just like, just this like anxiety that I've never had in my entire life. And it bled into performance anxiety. And I think I just didn't, I didn't know, even know what to, if I was going to call Ian, Ian Baker Finch, I wouldn't even know what to say at that time. It's like, 
because all you're looking for is a band-aid to make you feel better. But as soon as that gun goes off and you got to go to the first tee, it doesn't matter what Ian Baker or Finch has been through. You're going to still have to get that ball in the fairway. And I, that was the way I looked at it. Could I have gotten maybe a little bit of ice from guys? Yes. And, uh, but at the time it just didn't seem like the right thing to do. Next up, CBS lead analyst Trevor Emmelman on how they've tried to innovate and freshen up what was decidedly a, a stale network broadcast, which I believe we've documented here many, many years ago, uh, and his approach to building trust and meaningful relationships with the pros he's tasked with analyzing week in and week out. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sit here and take all the credit for this. I'm not. Don't please don't let me do that, Trevor. Please don't say that. I don't. I don't want any credit for any of this. Okay, please. But. Gosh, it seems like things have evolved at CBS over the uh, over recent months and years. I want you kind of just can you take me inside the room, meeting wise, schedule wise, planning wise for it seemed like you guys got together in the offseason and decided things were going to be done a little bit differently in golf television coverage. And you guys came out absolutely banging this year. What can you tell us about uh, kind of the evolution of, of golf coverage on CBS's part? Well, it sure has been a lot of fun. You know, whether I'm the right person or not to be able to speak about the evolution, I'm probably not because I've only been working for CBS for three or four years and I've only been in this lead analyst role for the West Coast swing. <laughs> so I, I'm the rookie on the team, uh, really. And so I'm not really in the best position to be able to speak on, you know, the changes over the last decade or so. But I can talk about now and what is going on now. And, uh, you know, what happened in the off season is we have great leadership. There's no doubt about it. We have uh, fantastic leadership from a standpoint of our lead producer, Seller Shai, and um, our, our director, Steve Milton. These are people that love the game, number one, first and foremost. Uh, you talk about Sellers. He's a great player um, and has been throughout his life anyway so he understands the game and then you know we have tremendous bosses back in new york that give us uh give these people the producer and director the leeway and the freedom to be able to try some things out and uh, and figure out what works best for cbs sports and so it has been a tremendous amount of fun for me I, like i thoroughly enjoyed the west coast uh, was I extremely nervous? Absolutely. Uh, do I have a, a keen understanding of how great of a position I'm in as lead analyst at CBS? 100%. There's only been a handful of guys that have been able to sit in that chair and have that voice. Uh, so I'm very well aware of the magnitude of that. Um, but, you know, we love what we do. We have a great team, top to bottom, in front of the camera, behind the camera. Everybody in the compound, hundreds of people that come to work pumped up, uh, ready to go, competitive, trying to put the best product possible out there. And so we have numerous um, group chats um, of people that are watching coverage week in and week out, talking about things they like, things they don't like, adjustments that could be made. And we're just always trying to get better. And we're always listening to everybody's um, opinions, whether it be um, you guys that know laying up or other people, other fans that don't listen to podcasts that only tune in for golf from three to six on the weekends uh, that have no clue what you guys are talking about. And they've been watching golf for 50 years, just one way, happy to do it. 
And so, you know, you try and take an opinion from the full spectrum and, and work within that framework to just keep better, getting better and better. But I am like loving my job and I am extremely uh, thankful to be in this position, to be sitting next to Jim Nat Nance, who I think is um, not only a legend of a man, but a legendary broadcaster. And uh, sheesh. I just, I just hope I can find a way to keep everybody fooled for the next 20 years so I can stay in that seat. That, that is my goal. It really is. Well, I, I will say a lot of your peers speak very, uh, very highly of your work ethic that's gone into it. And we can, we can see it from communications we've had with you and then you're kind of seeking feedback and you want to, you obviously take your, take that role very seriously. Uh, last question I have for you is you guys have kind of innovated and, and invented this thing, the walk and talk, right? The CBS stroll or whatever you guys want to call it in terms of interviewing players as they play a whole do you get a sense, and again, this was a takeaway I've had from talking to a lot of these guys, is they the, the light bulb has at least gone off to some extent in terms of the, the role they need to play in the entertainment product of golf and wanting to entertain golf fans. Do you get a sense of, of that kind of urgency or that kind of willingness from these players? Is Are people lining up now to go do that walk and talk and, and things like that? And, and what are other ways you could potentially see that innovating in the, in the weeks and months and years? Yeah, I think it's been a great addition. The technology is fantastic. You know, at times is, you know, if, if wind comes up, you can hear the wind and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of people back in the compound that are working on ways to get it even, even better. But it's been a tremendous success. I, I don't think there's urgency amongst the players. I wouldn't have used that word. But there's absolutely um, willingness to be able to dabble in it, to talk about it to try and understand it. Uh, I think the players are slowly but surely starting to understand that, hey, if you have the opportunity to get 10 to 15 minutes of just you on CBS network between three and six on the weekend, which is basically like primetime coverage, it is beyond valuable. I mean, it is something that is so incredible for you and your brand and your partners to where you can just allow people in enough to where they can get to know you and you can make fans and you can keep everybody happy, so to speak. For, for me, the way I've gone about it is, you know, you referenced the homework earlier and the preparation. You know, I'm, I'm a range rat. Every, every moment that I can, I'm down on the driving range at the tournament. I'm at the putting green. Uh, I'm trying to gather as much information from players, caddies, coaches, agents, uh, all, all sorts of people to just try and be able to um, add a layer or two during the broadcast if the moment presents itself. And I think as I've been able to get out there, look, the players still uh, know me from most of them have, I've competed with not that long ago, 2018, 2019. And so with my role as the international team captain. A lot of guys got to know me better and better. And now uh, spending so much time out at the golf course, on the range, on the putting green, you know, when you do that, players and caddies start to get more comfortable with you. And they start to understand why you're there. They start to trust you. And at the end of the day, what I keep saying to them and communicating to them is this, look, we can both acknowledge that 
I'm going to be on TV from three to six every Saturday and Sunday when CBS does a tournament. And if you're playing well, you're going to be on. So if that's the case, we have two options. You can either give me some information that I can talk about regarding you. Or if you don't, I need to at some point say something. So if you don't give me anything, that means I have to make it up. You have to guess. <laughs> so for me to make it up, there's a couple of things going on. I've been watching you on the range. I've noticed that you've missed 60% of your drivers that you hit to the left. I'm going to have to come up with a reason why. What are you doing with your swing? Have you changed your routine? Have you changed your driver shot? Have you changed your driver head? Have you changed your coach? And so if you don't give me some information, I'm going to have to dive in and figure something out. Because if Jim Nance turns to me and says, gee, Trevor, he's missed three tee shots to the left. Why is that? I need an answer. And, you know, as I've started to build up more and more trust with these players, um, they're opening themselves up more to it understanding that I am not in that position to hang them out to dry. I'm always going to tell the truth, but I'm not looking to be vindictive or personal in any way. I'm just calling it as I see it. And I need to do that because if I don't do that, I sure as heck know that you guys are going to call me out. And I know that there's going to be people at home that are going to call me out. So it's just the way it is. You know, everybody needs to work together in order to put the best possible product every weekend. Like I said, please don't give me credit. I, that, I, don't, I don't need that, Trevor, but I appreciate that so much. <laughs> 2023 marked an increased commitment from us uh, at NLU to our coverage of the women's game with more interview pods, more dedicated episodes to the LPGA Tour with Big Randy and Cody spearheading our coverage. We've got a couple clips from our interview pods up next. First, Danielle Kang. Uh, she joined us in April to talk about her road back from injury, but it was this clip about her work with Butch Harmon that we wanted to relive. I'm ready to nerd out on some golf swing stuff and other lessons you've learned with him. There's a great golf digest video I watched today of, uh, of you guys talking wedges here. And he, you talked about how he helped you flight it lower with wedges. How did he do that? What did you learn from him on, on how to flight wedges lower? He just told me to hit it lower. All right. But well, that, that's super helpful. Thank you very much for that. <laughs> Butch's, Butch's uh, method of teaching has his ways and he, he said to me that there is a reason to his madness. And I, I respect that too. I respect that tremendously. I, I don't know what he does half the time, but then it results into how he's wanted the results to be. Hmm. He has helped me flat my wedges. He's had, he's helped me very much in control around the greens. And I think that that was very important for making, helping me score better um, on par fives and things. And he's helped me be able to manage my own swing without needing him all the time and I think that that's important for him that was one of his goals and priorities for me to learn is so that I self-function because he doesn't travel and you know he's in Vegas and he wants me to know my swing more than anybody else does so that I know how to fix it on the golf course or I know how to go down the checklist and see what and be realistic on what how the shots came out on what it could have been and what it should have been so I think that's something that I really learned from him, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah, you can't walk off the golf course after every bad round and and be demanding that the coach help you fix it, right? You got there's got to be some internal governors yeah. and checks in there. But what was what was your first wedge lesson like with Butch Harmon? My first wedge lesson, actually, that was the first lesson I ever had with him. I wasn't hitting my wedges well, so I could either hit it the yardage and left and right, or 
have to pin long and short. I didn't have the combo. And then, so he told me to shallow out my swing. And I said, I don't know what shallow means. And then he tossed the club and just walked off. So what does, came back. what does it mean? He came back though. <laughs> he told me to play. And then he came back and said, can you hit a low draw? And I said, I can't. And then I was hitting these low draws and I said, um, why didn't you just say that? And he's like, we're not going to go there. So that was my first wedge lesson. So I, I'm guessing shallow and draw has same similarity. That's what I was learning back then. And that hitting a low draw helps to control the ball a bit better around the greens. There you go. Okay. Like pitching. So do you, do you like for like an 80 yard wedge shot now, do you, are you trying to hit like a low draw or how do you now hit it low? I mean, that really depends on the lie. So um, I mentioned previously that I do work with Drew Stuckel as well. So that's my coach and he, he's a bit more hands-on with me and with him, with working with him, my angle of attack has decreased by multiple degrees. So my max wedge that I used to hit my 58 was my, sorry, max number that I used to hit with my 58 degrees was 70 yards. That was my max ever, like 67 yards, 70 yards. But after working on certain things, now it flies 83. So when I have, now I have more to play with because of angle of attack being lower. Now the wedge, I can flight it a bit better. It flies further, spins better. So now I can play around with how I'm going to hit that, would you ask me, 80-yard wedge shot? Mm -hmm. I could take a 54-degree, open the face, and flight it down, pitch it, pitch it, and spin one stop it. Or I could hit a 58-degree, leave the face square, and hit a higher one and spin it. Or open the face and hit it 85 yards and spin it back. Like Those are the things that I can play around with because of the ball speed. That's why that PGA Tour short game is so unbelievable. I mean, this sounds... This sounds one like Phil talking about wedges or that Dennis Rodman where that, that Jeff where he's, you know, throwing the ball around. And I tip it this way. I go this way. I do this way. I love it. It's How awesome when I talk. Yeah, because it's imagination and you yeah. can do whatever you want with it. But you have to have the technique to get there. But how do you change your angle of attack? Like, what does that mean? I, I know what steep is and I know what shallow is, but what's the process in doing it? It's, you know, is So it what him and I have worked on for the past few months is to be able to because I'm very under everyone knows that I'm a very wide swing, um, super long and wide. And then I use a lot of my body to go through and I wanted to time it a bit less because timing, timing goes off when there's other factors into play, whether it's wind, whether it's rain, whether it's pressure, tension down the stretch, whatever it may be, you can't time things as well as you want to when other factors are in place. So I wanted to get rid of that a bit more. And Drew has worked it with me on how to time it less so that I flip it a bit less. Like I'm less at the ball flipping or manipulating it, which means it's going to go where my body goes and my club is kind of dragging with it. And at that point, the club staying the way it's supposed to stay has decreased the loft a little bit. But the ball goes higher because golf is a game of opposite, right? If you have a bit of angle of attack the ball will spin up the face a bit more the whole technology behind the r&d and then it just goes yeah so it's a bit better <laughs> is this all stuff you've learned in the last few years or is like where where was your knowledge on this like five years ago would you say i'm uh, not that great no i mean i'm a slow learner on the golf course i golf is one of the worst 
sports in the world or game in the world is because you learn the same, you make the same mistake every day and it drives you mental, but you have to learn and you have to figure out why it happened, how it happened and how to not make it happen, but it's how to decrease the chance, decrease the chance of happening it again, happening again. So, or giving yourself the best opportunity to hit the best shot. I think creating that percentage to be a bit higher, making that percentage to be a bit higher is my ultimate goal. And I think having a better angle of attack will have a better spin, which will have better results, which will have better dispersion and like ball speed, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the whole snowball, you know? Next, a fantastic, one of the more underrated episodes of the year, if I may say, Lilia Vu, uh, who would end the year as the number one player in the world after two major championship wins this past year. We had her in the pod at episode 679 back in May. Uh, she was fresh off the first of those major wins at the Chevron. Uh, the tournament was recently relocated to the Woodlands, Texas area, but there's still the tradition of the tournament winner jumping into the pond to uphold. What did you tell your mom after the playoff, Chevron? I think she was just crying. I... I wanted her to jump with me, but she was busy looking for my dad, and I. It's just B- like yeah, busy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. Well played, mom. Well played. I know. <laughs> what was the thought process? Obviously, everybody made a big deal about the the jump, and like, are we going to continue to this tradition and and everything? And then you kind of look at the pond, and you're like, like mm-hmm. it looks kind of greenish brown yeah. out there. They're talking about alligators. Like, obviously, you had a very very good jump. Caddy, phenomenal. Yeah, effort. he's just Pro- a star. Probably like one. He's just goaded. It, it was uh, incredible his performance on it. But <laughs> you know, is it something that obviously, like, yeah, you you w- probably walk by in like a practice round. And you're like, oh, I, pr- I, pr- I could probably do that. Like, that's fine. That's but, what we did. We were playing the practice round, and we looked at each other, and we're like, if we win, are we gonna jump? We both said yes, and then. It was time, and I was like, it looks so musty. And I saw a snake on 17, the previous hole. Okay. And then we were in the, we were waiting in the scoring tent before the playoff. And one of the LPGA media girls asked me, are you going to jump just, just so we can like be ready? And then I said, yeah, we're going to jump, right? And then I turned to Cole, and I'm like, are we going to jump? He's like, it's cold, but yeah. And I'm like, don't give us that attitude. Like, we're going to do it if we win. <laughs> What's it like waiting uh – in the media tent or uh, like, were you watching the golf? Do you like to watch the golf in that situation? Or is it like, Hey, just kind of tell me what's going on and tell me when I need to like go warm up maybe on the range. Well, I really didn't know what was happening. I didn't know there was like a TV right in front of my face. I didn't see it. <laughs> to be honest, I was just like, I just need to be here. They told me to stay in the tent. Like I can't go anywhere. Cause I wanted to go to the bathroom. Couldn't go to the bathroom. Oh no! And then <laughs> the all of a yeah. sudden, like the scores, are changing and then Cole just says like hey you want to go warm up when she hits her tee shot on 17 I said yeah and then just went from there my physio she was actually driving to Dallas on her way to Dallas and then I birdied 17 so she turned around I mean she was only 30 minutes out but she turned around came back my back was killing me the final round on at Chevron so we went to the range and before I started warming up she just worked on my back a little bit thank god I don't know it was so cold on the playoff hole so I definitely needed that for my back and then just started warming up I didn't know what was happening I was just going through like some of my routine and just trying to pick the pins as fairways on the range as you usually do and then um yeah I think once we started putting I asked um my physio and my caddy I'm like what 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 are the scores and they were like oh 
she bogeyed 16, bogeyed 17, and then she birdied 18. So there's going to be a playoff. So we just got in the cart and then went back to 18. Could you feel like the momentum still on your side? I think I'm not sure what really went to my head. I think I just still was in that mindset of like, you still haven't won. Like, you just need to be ready for a playoff. If you lose, you, yeah. If you lose and she, if she finishes 11 under, then she played the best of the tournament, rightfully so, she's going to win. And so I did what I needed to do. I birdied 17 to 18, gave a good run. I'm proud of myself. And so it was time to play 18 again. And then I just stuck with my process, hit over the tree. I don't know how the drive ended up you where it did. Piped I, that dr- I was going to ask, was that like abnormally long for yeah. you because well, you yeah. blew it past angel and angel's a long well, hitter she, she took a different route okay she she went towards the left of the tree i went over the that's tree that's what you couldn't really tell on tv but where your yeah. balls ended up i was like oh. it's ridiculous because my when i played my 72nd hole i had 200 in so i hit soft two hybrid and then during the playoff i had a seven iron in <laughs> So I, I turned to Cole and I said, did we hit something? And then he's like, no, there's just, it's just low spin. And I was like, well, golf nerd, uh, whatever, lame. Cool story. <laughs> Finally, on our recap of our LPJ content this year, Jane Park joined us for episode 717. Uh, Jane's playing career was halted as uh, she cared for her infant daughter, Grace, who has battled a series of debilitating seizures. And much of our interview was focused on that part of Jane's story. And you can uh, follow her on Twitter and Instagram at the Jane Park if you'd like to contribute to some of the foundations that Jane has set up uh, to assist those parents in similar situations. We did find time to talk with Jane about her return to the LPGA Tour at this year's Dow Great Lakes Invitational uh, and some of her favorite professional golfers, male and female, to watch and learn from. Mixed event that we had in Australia, where um, I think it was it was at Thirteenth Beach, and you know the tee times were uh, men's group then followed by a ladies group, followed by a men's group. And the respect that was paid to everyone, um, you know, I was hitting balls next to Jeff Ogilvy and I pretty much just stopped and like watched him hit balls. And it was, you know, he's doing things that I'm unable to do, but he's also admiring the women's game and saying, this girl hits her hybrid closer than my eight iron. And they're like, I I can't do that. Um, But I think there was equal respect paid to that. And just having that opportunity to showcase both games. um, And, you know, you obviously can't compare the women's game to the men's game. It's just so completely different, but I will say, I'll be the first to say, I love watching men's golf because it's like you said, it's like, it's like Superman shit. Like I can't, nobody can do that. And also don't sell yourself short. I think you can hit it 350 on the fly. I really do. It would take years of coaching. I I, I have, I have long levers and I absolutely don't (laughs) use them, but yeah. Not with your piss poor attitude. Not with that (laughs) attitude. You cannot. Okay. (laughs) Oh, my lack of hip mobility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, man. I'm I'm like, my hips already feel so tight. Yeah, just having having that stage would just be uh, that stage more often. I don't know. I don't know how to get there, but that's not really my job to. <laughs> it's, yeah. When you do watch the women's game, are uh, who do you who do you most? Well, let me let me back up and say it's incredible. You know, last year, I think it was the parent 
the the parent child tournament uh, that Nelly Corda played in, and those PGA pros reacting to just drooling her golf swing oh, drooling yes yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah yeah just fawning so. which rightfully so i mean she has maybe her and like adam scott probably like the two most picturesque golf swings out there yeah yeah um, you kim you kim's got a pretty decent move as well um but man i gosh if you've never seen nelly or Jess. I mean, I think, I think their swings are like pretty much identical. Um, if you've never seen them hit a ball up close, I mean, I, I've been paired with Nelly a few times and I am honestly so distracted by how incredible her swing is. The, the amount of speed she produces, but it makes it look like so fluid and effortless. And I'm just so impressed. I'm impressed. And, uh, it kind of, it gives me like a glimpse of like, maybe that's what people felt like when they were, when they were competing against tiger. And, but yeah, I mean, tiger's the goat. <laughs> I still watch, I still watch tiger, uh, compilations on YouTube when I'm like, oh, I can't, I can't sleep like tiger's top 25 shots or something. And <laughs> yeah. I'm such a golf nerd, man. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, well, we mentioned Nelly's swing. I, I'm curious on the women's side. Would who else do you admire, and for what reasons? It, it could be, you know, iron play, short game, putting, mental approach. I, I'm curious who you uh, really look towards as, as things and attributes uh, that stand apart. You mean like in ter- today's current game, or I, I think more current. Yeah, current. Yeah. Okay, Lydia Ko can get up and down from my mother's cleavage. (laughs) Like when I tell you she can get up and down from anywhere, it is absolutely, she has the best pair of hands. And I know this from firsthand watching her being paired with her where I'm like, okay, well, she's completely screwed there. There's no way she's going to get up and down. Then she like hits it to tap in range where, you know, if I were in the same situation, I'd be like, let's just get this on the green somewhere best short game. I think she has the best short game in the world. I'd put her up against anything or anyone. And, uh, you know, my husband Pete had caddied for her for, uh, for a year or two. And he's, he said the same thing, like you wouldn't believe where she hit it, but she got up and down. Like it was just like a, a straight chip right up the green, um, from the short stuff. But, uh, Lydia, uh, definitely she's got, she's got a great, a great head on her shoulders. Obviously, golf swing-wise, Nelly, I could just watch her swing on repeat. Um, and, and you know, these these girls that come out of college, and I'm just going to dip into the Rose Zhang pool because I'm, I'm a stan. I mean... Well, you I know, wanted you to look, ask you about Rose. So, yes, please, please go ahead. You know, you, like, when I was in college, you... And, and when I first came out on tour, like, 45 years ago, it college players weren't as polished. And I find that the most incredible and the most impressive thing, you know, Rose obviously had a stellar amateur career, like pretty much won everything. But then back in the day, you'd see, you'd see an amateur kind of have a lot of success as an amateur, but then you would, wonder like how is that going to translate into the pros into the pro ranks and 
a lot of times they kind of struggle coming out from coming out of college and straight onto the, onto the tour. But, you know, in comes Rose, she says, hello world. And winning on her first, in her first pro debut. I mean, you don't, you don't see that. You don't see that ever. Uh, at least not in, not in my lifetime, but I'm, I'm glad I did because man, you just, a lot of times you don't think that college game is going to translate into the, into the, uh, professional ranks, but she did. And it was, you're just watching history, man. How lucky are we? Next up, one of my favorites of the year, Podrick Harrington, episode 700, a fascinating conversation as to how he's made sizable gains in his swing speed as he's into his 50s. If you were doing a clinic, if you were to describe to people where speed comes from, how you've been able to get to the levels that you're at right now at age 51, what's a high-level way you would describe of how you've been able to do that? The number one way to get speed is you've got to break your own mental inhibitions. That's it. So you've just got to hit it harder, first and foremost. And and, uh, people don't understand that. They think they, you know, they think they can go to the gym and get stronger. Yeah, that's nice. Get stronger. But if you're going to hit the ball at the same pace on the golf course, you ain't hit any harder. You've got to hit the golf ball harder on the golf course. You've got to break the mental inhibitions. At a level, you're going to have to change your, you know, try and break into your central nervous system and change what that thinks is fast. Uh, so, like, you can have, uh, you can have a very, very strong, powerful, fast person, and we've seen this a lot when you get sports people who are great athletes come play golf, and they think golf is about swinging smooth and being, you know, rhythm and all that sort of stuff, and they're terrible golfers. Whereas, it, if if I got an athlete, the first thing I'd do is is I'd actually put a monitor on the ground get them something like speed sticks, which I use. And so there's no head there to no inhibition to hit the golf ball and tell them, right, I want to see you swing this stick as fast as you can. I don't care how you do it, what you do. I want to see it. You've got the feedback. I don't, you can do anything you like to make that go as fast as you can. And whatever makes it go as fast as it can, I'd say, right, now we're going to work with that and create a golf swing from that swing. Whereas people think you can create a golf swing and then add speed. No get the speed first then we can dial back and figure out okay we're going to play at 90 percent of that we're going to maybe connect a few things we're going to keep your arms a bit more connected your body something take lots of things like that but you've got to start with the natural speed for people who are playing golf yeah they they need to break the habit of what they're doing so something like speed sticks is brilliant for that because it's taking you away from trying to match accuracy with speed which you actually to start off with, you have to give up the accuracy. Like I, I would say to somebody, you know, if if you were trying to gain speed at a very basic level, hit 20 balls a week where you're actually trying to hit them crooked. So as hard as you can. And and the, if they go crooked, great. You're not trying to hit them straight. You're trying to hit, you're actually just trying for raw speed. Everybody wants two things and they're separate. You can't, you know, everybody says, oh, I want to hit it straight and fast. Well, do them separately. Have a swing that you hit straight and have a swing that you swing fast and then marry the two. And what you might find is your fast swing might go 10 miles an hour quicker than your encore swing. And if you hit enough shots with that on the range, you might find that your encore swing that goes straight is, gains five miles an hour. And, and, and this is, we, we go back to the, the, you know, the speed sticks. 
that's the whole concept. You're getting away from accuracy. You're swinging the stick. You're swinging at it. You lose that inhibition. You you might gain ten mile an hour there, but you when you go back to your norm, you're gaining two three mile an hour, which is like all the stats guys, all these data guys are showing the number one thing to, to lower your handicap for amateur golfers is distance. Distance. And I know we can go we can go back and say, well, you can go for efficiency too for distance, which is which is important. And that's why you you should work with a PGA pro or a coach to, to help with that. You know, if you're not hitting a draw off the tee for an amateur, you're it's madness. Like you're losing you know, a slice is costing you 40 yards of distance. And I swear to you, I'm 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 talking mid-range amateurs. I'm talking like you know, your 10 to 15 handicap. There's no way you're too crooked. I swear to you, you should be hitting a draw and hitting it 40 yards further down there. Amateurs can't afford to be hitting a power fade. Like unless you're a really quality player, you can't you can't afford that. You've got to be drawing it. So yeah, you've got to break your inhibitions, you've got to get more efficient, you've got to not worry about hitting it in the rough. And this is another thing which I couldn't understand for years. Certain players can't play from the rough. Psychologically, they just cannot handle missing. They don't like being in the rough. They think, you know, they need to hit it on the fairway. So if you're a short hitter, it's unlikely that you would have the mental capacity to miss a couple more fairways by getting long, when you get longer. So it's I've seen a lot of good players lose their game by trying to get longer. So it's a dangerous thing. Uh, it takes a certain type of person to be happy to hit 20 yards further and maybe miss two more fairways around. Uh, you know, but I, I personally can't handle not having the potential. So I couldn't have, like last week, say at, at LA Country, I couldn't have the potential or that I couldn't handle the fact on 14 if I couldn't reach that green in two. If I couldn't make, there was a 300-yard carry the first day. It actually got quite short in the tournament. It actually got down to 285. But I wouldn't be able to, I, 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 I couldn't stand up and compete if I thought somebody else could reach that green in two and I couldn't. Hmm. Like I had to lay up. That, that just would do my head in. Episode 704 was one of our shorter interviews. We were able to catch up with both Scotty Scheffler and Jordan Spieth in Dallas at a title shoot to talk about uh, Scotty's unique footwork, the reaction to uh, Tiger's I don't take divots comment, and a lot more packed into a half an hour with those two major champions. You know, there's a lot of commentary online just about Scotty's action, the foot action. It's it's different. It's it's unique. But we kind of hear the same stuff when we, we tune in on TV as to, you know, what we see. What's what's How would you describe what has made his golf swing so successful? Because it looks unorthodox, I think, to some of us. I, I think we would you would probably hear that a lot, Scotty. <laughs> well, I think you know the footwork is a result of what it's necessary for him to do for the consistency he has. He's got to get get off that right side totally onto the left, and he's able to hit, you know, play that that super consistent kind of cut shot with the driver that he has, and then he's able to work the ball both ways um, at a very consistent level. I think the tempo, the set. Um, I mean, Scotty's a Scotty's a grinder. He's always been somebody who, if anything, it's someone's had to pull him off the range versus ask him to practice more. When that happens, I feel like what he's doing is he's just getting that same rhythm, that same tempo, making sure that the timing of when things are set. I mean, I'm speaking for him when he's right here, but to me, it seems like, you know, it's his way. He knows how it works for him. When I remember 
the same thing kind of happening to me on my left foot, how I roll off or chicken wing. And those were both weapons of mine that when I lost them a little bit, I was playing worse golf. And so actually getting them back is a better thing. You talk about Justin Thomas, the slow-mo of him being off his feet when he's hitting driver. Well, that's an advantage for him. He's using that ground force to push up to how he generates so much power. Um, he just doesn't quite stay on the ground for it, which is pretty unique. But um, the, all these little things that are, call them, you know, in quotes, not textbook, uh, are weapons that need to be, uh, I think, looked at that way when they're done as well as he does them. Are you still as confused as you seem to be confused, Scotty, when Tiger was telling you about not taking divots with, with the swing? Because there's been many, many videos that I've seen since that would that would disprove what he was talking about when he's flushing and he doesn't take divots. You looked confused in that video. Were you as confused as it looked? Yeah, so that was really early in the morning. And it was my first TaylorMade shoot. And we had literally just gone from singing Christmas carols in like costumes. <laughs> and then we'd go out to hit balls. I'd gotten in late the night before from a tournament. And now we're out on the range just warming up. I'm trying to like figure out what's going on, what I'm doing. And I look over and Tiger's not making divots. And I was like, what, what, what are you doing? And usually he gives me an answer. This time he didn't. And so I haven't seen the video. I don't know what the look on my face was, but I'm sure I was pretty confused because I've asked him some questions in the past and he's typically given me answers. And this time he was just like, do I need to make a divot? And I was like, I'm asking you, man. You tell me. <laughs> Do you understand uh, it? I mean, I think to an extent, maybe just his control at the bottom is so good and he gets, you know, maybe his hands in a position where he can have the arc so low to the ground early enough and he can still hit the middle of the face without making a divot. At the same time, how many videos have you seen him take a massive Huge pelt divots. with like tons of spins? So I think... I mean, I think he was probably messing with Scotty to a degree. <laughs> that's gonna, oh, yeah. that's yeah, what it looked I like. Had to have been. You're I trying mean, to figure that out in the moment. I think, it but I think he like, can do anything. So maybe, um, you know, maybe it was what he was trying to do at the time. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't seen the video either. I just know. That, I'm that sure were, there was definitely some level of him him clowning with me at that time. Yeah. Do you do you guys like still are able? I, I've seen you know videos of guys playing practice rounds and kind of messing around with different shots and stuff. And it seems like I, I'm kind of amazed at, at you guys still seeming to be very curious about different techniques of the way to do to hit certain shots. Like, do, Scotty, do you feel like you're still learning how to do specific stuff? Because again, we're talking to somebody who seems like he has the complete package. Yet at the same time, I feel like guys are always tinkering and learning new techniques in a weird way. Yeah, I feel like I learn a lot by watching guys. And now that we're out on tour every week, you know, I get to play with guys that are playing their best golf. And so I get to learn a lot just by watching. And I feel like I can see a lot of stuff. And then if I ever have a question, I'll ask. And, you know, most of the time people give answers. Sometimes they don't. Um, but I always like kind of just figuring out that type of, like that type of information. Like I've asked Jordan a ton of questions when we play golf here at home just because it's a more relaxed atmosphere than in a tournament. But yeah, I feel like I'm still learning. I mean, what's I like something to know. you would ask him? Like, what, what's something you would want a example of or technique-wise? I mean, I feel like when we just play around out here, it's the conditions change. Like in the wintertime, we play this golf course. The greens are a little bit firmer. In the summertime, they're a lot softer, so you're trying to take off spin. And so I just get curious just about what – I guess more so what's going through his mind on certain shots, um, especially when he gets around the greens and, and on them. And so, yeah, I love picking his brain. Do you still feel like you're you're learning in that regard, Jordan? Yeah, I think so. I'll credit my coach, Cameron, a lot for certain shots, especially around the greens where, you know, it might be a new way to hit a bunker shot that that he's figured out will help get it higher, softer, and land it shorter. You know, when you get in trouble, it's more like shots when you're when you're potentially in 
in trouble or wider action. You know, when you get around the greens, it's not a golf swing. You know, they're all different chipping motions to create the, the loft and spin that you need um, or need to, to drop depending on the shot. So I feel like I learned quite a bit from him on that. I'll see some players do some things. I've historically been, it's been a character flaw of mine to be too stubborn to ask a lot of questions, thinking like I already knew how to do everything. And then you see some guys hit shots and you're like, man, you know, I think I know how you did that. Um, and I'll just, you know, what were you thinking on that? And the thing is like, for us, it's, I could feel one thing and if he felt the same thing, it could be totally different. Right. So when you ask somebody about their feels on it, it could help, but it may just be like, oh, that's actually doesn't work at all for me, but it's still worth, you know, asking those questions. I mean, Tom Kim asks a ton of questions. He's one that um, asks a ton of questions, but like I'm envious of that at his age because I think he'll, you know, he's got most every shot around the greens. He's, that's probably the most underrated part of his game, but he'll still be asking how you hit him, even though I just watched him hit it as well or better than I just did, you know? So I think it's something that even at 10 years in right now, it's useful for me to continue to try to do. I feel like both you guys are in a way are, are kind of big brothering Tom Kim a little bit here in Dallas. Does that, does that seem right? You guys were at dinner last week. What, I think, I think I've been dad and dad. Scotty, Scotty's, Scotty's been big brother. <laughs> we normally steer clear of replaying moments from our Sunday night recap pods on these year in episodes, but we have to make one exception. Episode 721. Tron was so convinced that Tommy Fleetwood was about to win his first major at the 2023 Open that he flew overnight to Liverpool, where Tommy ultimately finished T10, nine shots back of Brian Harmon. But uh, here's what happened when TC joined the Sunday live show to face the music. Look at this. We're <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and give him one of my earbuds so that he can hear the audio, and uh, we'll see if this works. We're going to do a little like in-the-field correspondent uh, as Jimmy Weir was called lollipopping with the mic. So, uh, please, KBV, you ask the questions. Okay, um, TC, you've you've come back from uh, I think some time with uh, with Mister. Uh, no, no, that's my thing. I need you to put that in your ear. Okay, uh, uh, Kevin, that was mine. That was not working. I was over there, and I ran over in the rain. It is like a monsoon out there, right? and a huge monsoon. So I did see a picture of you and Tommy together. Uh, if you could maybe tell us how that came about. Yeah, uh, Tommy apologized profusely over and over and over again. Big, really big of him. And I, I said, Tommy, I apologize to you. I, I should have been here earlier. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it was just the guy tried really hard and he had a bunch of pressure on him this week. And I was pissed that he didn't get the ball to the hole. <laughs> Randy, shut up. Can you imagine PC saying this about anybody what? else? Can you, I, I know. I can he tried really hard. He tried really hard. It's not your fault, Tommy. Guys, let him go so we can, use, we can use this audio for anything. Like, yeah. let him finish it. I want to hear the whole finished take. We can use it forever. TC, you are under oath, by the way, right now. <laughs> All right. It's true. All right. I feel like things, if we got this weather yesterday, Oh We're not God. having this conversation, <laughs> all right? Things just oh didn't break God. our way. Straight up. They didn't break our way. I know we made a triple on 17. I didn't see it. I broke off after 14 You bailed? Holes. You didn't see yeah, him into the clubhouse? I bailed because I was trying to get back here, and then – and then You had a job to do. Yeah. We told him he had to be ready. Especially when you – like, it turns out the RNA isn't very friendly to journalists who show up, you know, morning of the <laughs> sure. final round. No, I know that. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. 
So but I'm, I'm proud of TC referring to himself as a journalist. Now <laughs> we've come come a long way, baby. A lot of people bought me a lot of beers today, guys. <laughs> Took a lot of selfies with people. Uh, very unjournalistic on my part. I apologize for that. I'm so wet. Like it, it like it was. I mean, like anybody in the states, this would have been a like a third full. Everybody stuck around till the end. Like I've never been to the open before. I had an awesome day. It was so much fun. People were, you want to talk about the best fans in golf? These are the best fans in golf, Randy. You would love it. You would eat it up. You heard it here. I mean, what a, what a field report we have there. TC, ask TC if, if he, if he can um, give us a little bit of detail about that dream he had last night. Oh yeah. They want to know about the dream. Guys, the dream was on Friday night. Okay? Excuse me. Yes. I slept on the plane last night, Randy. Right, so right, just, right. Just to, of course, you know, of like, course. I want to see you believe in something like I believed in Tommy, um, which, by the way, I feel closer than ever. I feel like we are we are so close. He's raised his floor. He might win the FedEx Cup, which which would be cool for you. I can't yeah. imagine how cool that would be. I know you've you. always celebrated that. And I, I, yeah, the FedEx Cup should be the fifth major, as you've always said. I don't know. See, I see, talked to I, the. You can't, you can't win the FedEx Cup anymore without winning a tournament. I could see this like pre 2019, but unfortunately, you do have to win a tournament to do that. Which is that, you know what, Solly, that makes it even cooler, right? Uh, Let's get back to the dream. What, what was in the dream? What, what convinced you that you needed to hop on this plane? That he, that he was going to win the FedEx Cup? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Uh, no, it was, it was going to be like one of the greatest sporting moments of all time. He was like, he was up so on everybody's close. shoulders. I, I don't know. It was just, it was very vivid. Okay. It was I, very vivid. I feel like this dream is like letterboxed in like four, three aspect, like one of the 1977, you know, old BBC broadcasts. It's all like, it, it's all kind of washed out. And I, I would imagine that's, that's probably how it looked. TC. I don't know, man. Like I just sat with Finno for like an hour, Finno and his wife. And we recapped like the last three rounds and like, I don't like, he got fooled by the wind on one hole. He just, it was like, the putts just didn't go in, man. And like, I know they haven't gone in in a lot of the majors, but I, or a I don't lot know. of tournaments like, in general. I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, I'm gonna keep betting on Tommy and the people that are fans of the Vision Fund or shareholders. Like you guys, I took money out of my own pocket to come here. If that doesn't tell you exactly where my heart is and where my head is, I don't know what to tell you. I can't do any better than that. Next up, episode 728, uh, Billy Walters came on the pod to discuss his book, Gambler, Secrets from a Life at Risk. Sizable portion of the book is centered around Walters' relationship with Phil Mickelson and their fallout uh, when both found themselves in legal trouble. How did you guys leave your relationship? What's the last uh, last time you spoke or kind of, uh, you know, you, you talk a little bit about in the book, there was a, a gambling debt he had towards you that, that lingered for quite some time and uh, it obviously ends pretty awkwardly with, you know, him not taking the stand to testify on your behalf. But how have you guys left it if you had communications? Well, when I went to prison for 31 months, I had some family issues. I have a son who's severely intellectually challenged and he almost died two or three times. And uh, every time that came up, uh, you know, a lot of things go through your mind and Phil not testifying was one of those. And then, then I had a daughter who committed suicide. That's something I'll never forgive him for. Has he attempted to to mend the relationship at all, or is there is there any 
Any, yeah, any hope for uh, it? I was playing golf at Rancho Santa Fe one day with some friends, and uh, I was coming off the range, headed to the cart, and uh, he walked up to me. And uh, this is out of the clear blue sky. And uh, we had a, a brief conversation, and he told me how it was how good it was to see me back on the golf course and uh, and uh, how glad he was. And he went on to say, well, you know, the reason I didn't testify in the Southern District of New York, he said, I don't know what Tom Davis told you. I said, no one asked you to testify to what Tom Davis told me. I said, don't give me the bullshit. I said, all, all anyone wanted you to do was testify to what I told you. That's the only thing you could testify to. And uh, then I made him aware of the fact that my daughter committed suicide in prison, and he said he was sorry. And uh, that's the last time I spoke to him. Uh, you know, the thing is, uh, when I went to prison, uh, so before, first of all, when the issue came up and I was indicted, he, he held his press conference and uh, said he was going to be a lot more careful about the people he associated himself with, referring to me. And, uh, but at the same time, he had just gone into a partnership with Brian Zuroff, and they had started the show, The Match. And Brian's a convicted fellow. I know Brian. I'm only I'm only making the point he's a convicted fellow because just to show you how big a hypocrite Phil is. He has a press conference. He's distancing himself from me because I'm a convicted fellow. But at the same time, you know, he's in a partnership with a convicted fellow. And uh, so anyway, uh, I was in prison. It was difficult. It was difficult because of my son and my daughter. And I, 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 although I'd like to, I don't think I'll ever be able to forgive him for that. We close the month of August with episode 733, a visit with George Gankus to talk about all things swing mechanics, coaching Matt Wolf through his struggles and how he tries to help his tour pros uh, handle difficult rounds. How do you send your players on their way, right? I, I can leave a, a golf lesson feeling great. I can take note of all the all of the things I need to be working on. Yet, you know, I, I struggle with the balance of, all right, now when things go wrong again, do I need to check in with my coach or do I figure this out on my own? Am I over, overly reliant on my coach? Is he just going to tell me the same things? How do you send your guys on their way to practice and, and, and implement things and not be overly reliant on you every time they go out and shoot a bad round? I think when a coach doesn't tell you a lot, it's because they want your your mind to be clear and they want you to play better. But I explain everything in detail, whether that's too much for a player or not, an, or, or or just overbearing in in information. I don't care because I want them. I believe that they're only going to come to me one time, and I'm never going to see them again. So if I have that belief. And the thing that I always tell players like, well, when should I get in? I'm like, I don't give a shit when you come in. I'm booked for a year. I don't need you. I want you to play good. And I want you, I want to give you everything you need. So if you want to come back next week and you can get in, I'm all for it. And I'll help you to death. But I want you to understand this information. So when you go look in the mirror, you go look on video, you know, you're doing it right. And here's the checkpoints. These are the things that you need to look. And if it's going bad, this is why. Is it your face? Is it you're not recentering? Are you not getting depth? Are you not finishing your turn? What's really going on? I want them to be their own coach. And if they can be their own coach, they don't need me. And that to me has always been someone who cares and someone who is a real, real good coach for them, not somebody that's going to rely on them. Because a lot of coaches, in my opinion, want you to rely on them because they need somebody to come back to. So that is not me. And I'm not knocking somebody that needs to keep business going because that's part of a plan. And that's a, it's a good plan. I, I think the player should see people very often. But the fact is, is, is not giving information out and not letting them actually 
you know, think on their own is a different story. So for you to answer your question thoroughly, I would say you personally, if you leave a lesson, you should, if something's going wrong, there should be some detailed plans to what to do next. Am I getting steep? What do I do if I get steep? These are your checkpoints. Okay. If I'm actually starting to hook it, what, these are my checkpoints. You're not rotating through it. Why can't I rotate through it? Because you're moving your upper body off too much and you're not recentering. So now you can't rotate. Your face is getting open. You got to check this. So things like that are things that I, I'm very thorough on and make sure that they understand. And I also, like I said, I give them the, my number for like, call me two, two weeks out. You've got free range to send me videos. And they do. People send me videos and do. That's the coolest. You didn't have to do that. But the fact is, is that if, if I can 20 seconds fucking see something on video, send them back a voice memo and it gets them on their way, fuck, it's, it's a no brainer. Mm -hmm. Next up, a project that was near and dear to our hearts. We released a documentary film about our friend Jim Hartzell and his book, When Revelation Comes. It profiles the loss of his son, Jordan, and how he found peace through a trip uh, to some of his favorite links courses in Scotland. And we recorded a podcast with Jim and our pal, Matt Golden, who's edited a ton of our video content over the year. Episode 741, When Revelation Comes. Jim, I want to start with you. You had a chance to watch the film for the first time today. As I mentioned up front, it is it is based on a book that you wrote in 20, really came out in 2022, but the, the whole book is based around a trip that you took in 2021. We tried our best to kind of recreate the feelings, the thoughts, all of the things that, that went into that original trip and uh, really tried to celebrate your return trip that you took in 23 with Tron and Matt and Patty and Robbie and all the people that you see in the film. And, and so I guess we'll just start really high level. Your, your reaction to, to seeing it for the first time, what was kind of the most important thing for you to, to have come across on film and, and I guess just kind of in, initial impressions? Yeah, I got to say it's it's difficult to talk about in a way. I mean, I watched it once when Tron sent it, um, and I just really cried the entire time I was watching it, to be quite honest with you. It's just beautifully put together, and it, it just – what I love about it is – this is a terrible subject, there's no doubt, and but it's that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is to celebrate life and to celebrate Jordan's life and to celebrate the Scottish people, and that's what this, this film does. And just to see Robbie and Greg and Finley and Harry, who's one of the greatest characters that's ever walked the planet, <laughs> I just I laughed out loud while I was crying. When I wrote this book, that's what I wanted to happen. I, I you know, and you guys have read it, and you know, there's humor in it. And I deal with life with humor a lot of times. And I told Tron, he, Tron texted me a few days ago and he said, look, Jim, I want you to know this is pretty, at times it's, it's, it's emotional. And I said, I said, well, as long as there's humor in it, I'm fine. And he said, don't worry. There's plenty of that. And, and it is. And, uh, I just can't thank you guys enough for the way that you captured the spirit of this book and the spirit of the people of Scotland, which just totally comes across to me, which is, I can't ask for anything. And, and honestly, a test of, a tribute to Jordan too. Uh, uh, I just, uh, that part and some of the stuff, it's perfect. It was perfect. And, and so thank you for that. Well, the, the guy who had maybe the biggest hand in, in crafting how the final project looks is, is Matt Golden. Who's on the pod today. You've probably seen his name in just about every credit that I think we've ever put out. Matt has been working with us since we did uh, Tourist Sauce Australia. And just to embarrass him a little bit, the I think the first interaction we ever had, you know, we're 
I had just quit my job at the PJ Tour. I'm pitching these guys on like, oh, maybe we should make a travel series. I don't really know how to use a camera, but maybe we can shoot it on our cell phones. I don't know. We'll just let's just go to Australia and we'll shoot it all and we'll figure it out. Matt had just cold emailed me and was like, "Hey, I'm I'm a freelance editor. I'm making making a business for myself, and you know I watch what you guys do and and listen to the podcast. And my specialty is just kind of taking a big pile of footage and just trying to find a story on it. I was like, Oh my god, man, this is our <laughs> this is our guy. This our is white who we whale. Need. <laughs> That's right. And so as much as uh, people like to to pile credit onto me, uh, which of course feels very nice, and I would never uh, share that with anybody, but uh, it's it's really Matt behind the scenes that that spins a lot of these things up. And I, I think, Matt, this is kind of the first time that that we've really like turned you loose on like, hey, man, you're you're running the ship. You're shooting everything. You're editing it. You tell us what you need. And so I want to start with just like what, what was that experience like for you? And how did you see Jim's story and where did you want to take it? Because this is something I think you, me and Tron have been talking about for I mean, really going back before Jordan passed away and just seeing Jim's passion for all these these places in Western Scotland. And, you know, I think we've been talking about this for three, four years around like, God, if we could ever go to Western Scotland with Jim, I think that just feels like the dream project. And obviously there was a lot more context added. So, so Matt, how did you kind of want to wrap your head around things and where did you start? Yeah, first off, you're going to get so many cold emails now from... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I don't respond anymore. Right. Yeah. No. Uh, uh, we found our guy. We're, we're good. Good timing. Yeah. Good timing. But, you know, yeah, we've been talking about this one for a long time and I think it had so many different layers and kind of stories that we thought it could be still in this piece. It's like mixing three or four or five different trips into one thing. And, uh, we get a little bit of like, okay, show us, you know, the travel series of it all, show us these places that you, we know you love and show us why and the people. And, the, but then we also have kind of the full circle moment of the book signing and that whole journey and the journey of writing the book and the journey of, you know, getting to meet all these characters and Robbie and Greg and all them. And I, I think it was just when we set out to go shoot it, our baseline was like, we have the source material. It, we have this incredible interview we did with Jim in his office. And if we just go create B-roll and capture B-roll for that and get like really beautiful stuff, which is not hard at these places, it's point the camera, press record, and make sure you <laughs> save the files, uh, which is harder sometimes than you yeah. think. But, <laughs> but thank goodness, like we we tried to get more than that. We tried to capture you know, the moments and the levity and the culture and uh, the people that were able to bring healing and were able to transform Jim and all of us, you know, to a new place. And I think we were able to kind of achieve that. I think we were able to achieve showing off these places with incredible shots and that baseline, but also something a little bit more too. So no, this one's been a special project and this has been uh Something I've been working on for a long time, and I can't wait, you know, to get it out into the world and and see uh, see reaction from people. Next section of the pod will be from the 2023 Ryder Cup recap as we relive the European triumph in Rome. We'll start with episode 750 with Max Homa, who gave us his take on being a Ryder Cup rookie, including making a huge putt on the 18th hole of a singles match, uh, and always from the pro. Some honest self examination on his ability to embrace the pressure of the biggest moments in golf. Basically, just take take me through kind of from there until the time that the putt hit the hit the bottom of the cup. Well, it's actually funny you start at the end because 
I was convinced the first tee would be the most nervous I've ever, ever, ever been. <laughs> and I was so wrong. <laughs> I had on the, the first tee to that moment, I, I, I thought I got better as the week went on about like controlling my nerves and just like, it was laughable how nervous I was on the first tee. I felt so calm until right when I stepped into the tee shot, my left leg went nuts. And I, I told Joe, it's like when you're doing a wall sit and you do it a little too long. And I was like, dude, and he's like, oh, I couldn't see it. And he always jokes. He goes, it's so funny what you feel. Cause he goes, you look so like poised and calm. And I'm like, dude, I just like lost control of my body, but I hit the fairway. So I was like, I'm going to take that with me. Fast forward that to the <laughs> last, I would say the last three holes, but that last, that last hole is such a blur to me. When we got home, I nerded out and I told Lisa, I said, I have to watch the last hole like in real time. Cause I was like, I don't remember a lot of it. Like I remember what I felt like. I don't remember it. Just a lot of it was so blurry. I, I, I remember little, little things. Matt made me putt a 12 inch putt on, I was probably longer than that, but 18 inch putt on 17. And I was nervous, but I was never missing it. I remember walking off the green Security. I'm giving you a very long answer for this one putt, but uh, we had nothing. I got nothing to do. My brain goes. Nothing less for you, bags. But security had done a very poor job all week. I thought, or the volunteers, or whatever. Um, with when we would walk off the greens, once the euros, if the euros were first, like everyone would follow after them, and it got pretty old. It happened the first day on one hole where we were getting killed after nine holes to Victor and Ludwig, and I, I feel bad. I shoved a man out of my way. Like it was just like absurd how many media people were there that were clearly just fans of the, like they weren't media people. You could tell. So we were all kind of fed up or maybe I'm not going to speak for everybody. I was fed up with it. And when we were walking off 17, I was, I was pretty pissed off that I was still on the golf course. Cause I thought I should have won by then. And, and I was, and I was pissed that I had to put a very short putt after giving Matt a longer one. And then while we were walking off, Matt had be, obviously was already off the green and was up the hill to 18. And all of a sudden, it's just getting filled with people. And four of those people were the Euro team players. One of them was Rory. And I'm like walking behind him and he like had stopped. And Is he the guy I you shoved out of the way? No, it was close. <laughs> I will tell Rory if he didn't say sorry, I, I think I was going for him. So he, I said, excuse me. Did he start me. waving his hat in your face? Is that what happened there? <laughs> I think he had his hat off by then. His, his protest began right as the event ended. <laughs> um, so, but I, I said, excuse me. And I was like very annoyed that they were all there. But he, he obviously, it's Rory. He said sorry and like moved out of the way. But I was just like so tilted by that, which was kind of helpful because it like moved my nerves to kind of like back to that kind of F you attitude. And then the last hole just a blur and, and, and I was so nervous and tired and all of those things. And I got, I thought of one thing that was stuck out the, when I had that putt is that on uh, Friday afternoon, I missed, uh, I had a very, very good putt with Justin uh, against Justin Rose when I played with Wyndham and I, Wyndham deserved to win that match. He played tremendous. The, the back nine, he hold putt after putt and was just rock solid. And, I had, you know, 12 feet or whatever on that, that hole. I had a putt, missed it, and Rosie makes it right in the middle. And, I mean, he played unbelievable, deserved it. But I felt awful. And in college, I missed the putt. Uh, I three-putt my last hole of my collegiate career to lose to Thomas Peters to lose in match play of the team event. 
And I was so like despondent for like 40 hours. And I remember flying to the US Open qualifier. And I remember being on the plane saying, I don't know if it will be tomorrow, a week from now, a month from now, or 10 years from now. I want that putt again. Like, please let me have that putt again. I do not want to end my golfing career without getting an opportunity to show that I can do that. Like, I know I can do that. And just so happened that the next day I had seven feet to get into a playoff or to keep a playoff going to get to the U.S. Open. And I made it. And I remember being over that putt saying, Bubba, you asked for this. Like, you could be nervous, but you asked for this exactly. So you better at least relish that opportunity. And I remember I Matt missed and I had seven, seven feet. And I remember saying, you asked, you wanted this. So like flip the nerves. You're, you're nervous, but you're not scared. Like you asked for this exact moment and you're getting it in the biggest way. But it was just crazy. I was basically telling everybody, you dream your whole life as every single golfer ever has of making a putt to win the Ryder Cup or making a putt to win the Masters or the U.S. Open or whatever, I have never dreamt of making a putt to not lose the Ryder Cup. That was a very different feeling. And I had such a good week personally on the golf course that I knew I would be labeled a choker and and it just didn't feel like a fair thing. But I remember I really turned my brain on. You, you wanted this. This is a very cool opportunity. But I lost full control of my body. I can't believe watching it that you can't see my legs shaking. I couldn't feel anything. Like my legs were vi- like full-blown vibrating like my I had 50 phones tied to my legs and everyone was calling me it was a wild and I I I watched it like I said last night I just don't know how I made it and that motherfucker was right in the goddamn middle (laughs) like it was the best putt ever and I just don't know it was crazy and then there it was funny because I turned to Scotty and Colin and I was I screamed so loud so loud and Scotty kind of got amped up and Colin was kind of clapping and they didn't know I took an unplayable. They, th- they thought I got a regular drop. So they thought I had two putts. So Scotty said when I hit it, he said, slow down, like slow down. And I, I came up to them after and, and I was like going crazy. And they were like, oh, you know, Scotty kind of, Scotty said he, he decided whatever I did, he was going to match my energy. So he was up, but everybody didn't seem quite as like up as I was. Well, nobody knew we, stand, standing next to the green. Nobody. It was just you, no, Joe, and the officials. An, it's not like there's an announcer out there. Yeah. So everybody just assumed the ball it was embedded or, or something. Yeah. yeah. No, nobody quite knew like the Ryder Cup's literally on the line for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I didn't know why they were booing. I didn't understand anything that was going on. And then we got it back to 17 and Scotty goes, I had no idea. That ball was like for far. <laughs> I was like, dude, it was, so it was the craziest moment. But I'm so thankful that I got to have it. And and obviously I'm extremely grateful that it went in, but yeah, it was that, I don't know. It was, it was, I had so many experiences that week. And then to get to kind of finish my personal performance on the golf course with that was really cool. I wouldn't call it a dream come true because, you know, none of the actual, the end of it didn't, you know, it wasn't like some, some dream story, but I, I was convinced this week that I would take some things from here and 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 go forward, use it to go forward in my career. And Brooks said something really interesting in the press conference that everybody saw when they asked who wants the ball, like who truly wants it, who wants the putt. And he said very few. And I thought about it all week. So I was like, man, you know, to, to him and to everybody in golf, like the, the people who want the ball are major champions. And I have been absolutely tremendously bad in them for what I think I'm capable of. And I was like, I bet you he like, I, I'm not on his short list of people who want the ball. 
Um, and if I had to ask myself deep down in the, I think it's like in your core, like you have to go through, you have to dig. I think everybody would say, I want that putt. And I was like, man, maybe if I dug deep down, maybe I don't want that. And it felt, I thought about it all week. So I was like, I want to be that guy. I want to be, I want, I, I respect so much of what Brooks does in those majors and obviously Tiger and like my favorite athlete ever, Kobe, like they clearly like that's in their DNA. They want that win or lose and there you know you could be in the worst spot ever and all of a sudden i had a moment where it was like i said it wasn't to win it it was to not lose it which i think is way scarier and i was just convinced that like i'm going to at some point prove that like i that is who i am and um i think even if i missed it the way i approached it i was proud of but it was i was very happy that it went in because i i i want to be one of those people he's talking about and um i have not proven that yet so it was it was nice to at least add that to my at least my rolodex in my head of things i can harken back on you know in hopefully a year's time at, at one of the four big ones next we had a chance to visit with hunter mayhan talk about his experience broadcasting in rome uh for the world feed of the Ryder cup hunter of course as a former Ryder Cupper who uh, once asked some of the same questions about player compensation that resurfaced during this year's matches, we talked about that controversy and how it also potentially impacted the 2023 U.S. team. Yeah, I mean, I, I opened my big mouth years ago and got a lot of flat for it um, talking about, I think Mark Amira and, and Duvall were some of the early guys that time to talk about it. And I talked about it to a guy and it was the wrong place, the wrong time. What, what I said, I'd never been a part of a team. So it was my own, you know, uh, negligence and, and being stupid and young, but it's a real thing in terms of this is a big event. There's 24 of us playing. They're making a lot of money off the event. I think, I think what just you just want a little bit of transparency into tell us what we're doing, how we're getting reciprocated for our efforts and, and our product that we're putting out there. And where is the money going? Because I know, because it's not like it just goes in someone's pocket. I mean, it, it funds the PGA of America. It funds all their junior programs and it funds everything that they do. It's just, you just want a little transparency when you, you don't know where it's going. And it feels like you're being taken advantage of a little bit, right? And so it has come to, you know, players get it for the charity. Um, and that's great. I think I think it just needs transparency is, is what I would go back to and just say, hey, PJ Ramirez should come in and talk to the players and say, hey, this is where it goes, how we do. Um, these are the things we do for you. And just kind of lay it out so it's a little bit, you have a better understanding of it. I think when you just sort of show up and do it and you see the size of the tents and you see the merchandise and you see all that stuff, you do feel like, wait a minute, am I getting my sort of fair share? And I know people talk about, you know, uh, you get bonuses. I get that. And in any business, when you work, you want to get, you know, you want to get your money for the work that you do. So um, I, I don't mind the players asking the question. I just think a little transparency, a little understanding of what's happening, where it's going. And I think, honestly, as we all were, we're like, we're on board with that. And that's totally fine. We're good. We're good. But... I think it was a problem this year. And I think that was sort of substantiated afterwards. Like it was an issue. It was not when, when not everyone is truly there and bought in and, and ready to go and is there to kind of just be there. It's not a great feeling, right? You're, you're going against a giant who's all in 
And, and what we've talked about, we just spent a long time talking about, they're all in and you're not all in. And they're some of your best players and, and they're, they play together and you don't really, but there are also two guys where you see out there playing. You're like, well, who else do I pair with them? Are they the guys that I ask to sort of help take charge? I mean, Patrick's awesome. He's a, he's, he's, he's in that Brooks mold, right? Where they're just, they're a little bit better individuals than they are sort of part of a group. It's sort of the reality of it because Brooks is, he's, he's an assassin. He's a killer. He's nasty. Like he's just going to like in singles, he just mows you down, you know, and Patrick's sort of the same way, but like these guys aren't wrapping their arms around Wyndham and saying, Hey brother, just lean on me all day. If you have any problems, if you have any questions, like Justin Leonard, when I play with him, he just like, I just leaned on him that whole week. And and, and I didn't, I played with Phil um, Saturday afternoon and he came up to me and just hugged me and said, I'm going to be here all day with you. If you ever need anything, you ever have a question, I'm right here, right? That's leadership. And that's like not what you see from the U.S. side. You see bonding, but you don't see a guy wrapping their arms around a window and saying, bro, I got you. I got you. I'm going to talk you through this all day. I'm going to be with you all day. I'm going to like just, you know, you're just like a, like a, taking care of a puppy. Like you're just, you know, you're just feeding them confidence, feeding them energy. It's like, we just didn't have that. Right. It just, you know, it just, it, it you know, and, I, and part of that is just, you're just not asking the guys, you're just not asking them about that. And then I think honestly, when you build your team next time, you're, you got to take that into consideration. Like who are my dudes who are going to take care of the other guys? Like that's a real thing to ask. Probably should bounce over to the European side here. The, you know, the team that won this episode 757, uh, European stats guru Eduardo Molinari. And uh, while there's plenty of talk of analytics, setup, and pairings, this stretch from Dodo really helped give us some insight as to why the Europeans always seem to punch above their weight in the Ryder Cup, particularly on home soil. I, I walk away from every one of these and be like, okay, this is why Europe wins. This is why Europe wins. And I still, it, you've played in you've played in a Ryder Cup. Like you, you've been here for this. How does that team environment translate to playing better golf? Like, why is that, right? I mean, I, I can see it in my own eyes. I still struggle to explain uh, why that is, though. It's difficult to put into words. I think you feel like you're part of something bigger than yourself. You see, like, the, especially the top guys in the team, they, I mean, they, they literally live for the Ryder Cup. Like, even someone like Rory, on the Monday night, he gave, uh, you know, we just had a bit of a chat after dinner with the whole team and, you know, the players, vice-captains and, and Luke. And Rory was trying to explain what the Ryder Cup means to him. And at the end of it, he was almost in tears. He was almost like, he was so, like, ready for it. And, and he just wanted it so badly. And I told him on, on the Sunday after we won, I I bumped into him on 18 when we were waiting for Shane to finish. And I said, Rory, I just couldn't believe how much this means to you. Because obviously, you, you know, you still have the Masters to win. You still have, you want to win majors. You want to, I thought you were wanted to win mostly majors. And he said, this is, you know, this year, this is the thing that I wanted the most. Which, you know, from someone like him is like... It's powerful. So I think as a, you know, when you're a rookie in that team room and you see someone like that, that is so motivated to play well, it just inspires you to play better golf. And then the other thing as well, I think, is that, again, guys like Rory, John, I mean, if you if you walked in the team room any day of the week, it looked like John and, 
Rory were best mates with Bob and Nikolai, and they probably saw each other two times before the week. But it was literally, you know, having dinner together and, you know, Bob was sitting at the table, Rory would go there and have a chat, and, and it's like, it's difficult to see. NBA superstar Steph Curry rejoined the pod this year. He was named the 2023 Charlie Sifford Award winner for his work in advancing diversity in the game of golf. Here he is on the pod. Your work with the Howard golf team, you know, has been has de been decently well documented in the golf world, and I want to follow up with that. But tell us about the underrated golf tour, what you're doing there. It's remarkable from the stuff I've heard. And I don't think I fully appreciate it until I was uh, getting ready to chat with you tonight. But tell us about what that is and what you've seen out of that program so far. It's been great, man. I think uh, the foundation of the underrated golf tour is continuing to boost resources and opportunity for the underrepresented, especially in the, the competitive golf age where – you know, some of their counterparts are, you know, playing in some of the AJGA events that are amazing around the country. And uh, we're trying to find, you know, a way to kind of boost up that pipeline of how do we get more black and brown kids out there on the golf course, uh, you know, supporting uh, them and their families in terms of getting uh, them to the venues and creating first class experiences for them at, you know, PGA major type venues, creating a, a base where, you know, these kids really believe that, you know, they're well, first they're talented. Second, that if you give them the experience and, and boost confidence and give them uh, an opportunity to shine, that it can change lives. And for us to be where we are in our second year, we've had 10 total tour stops. Uh, we've supported uh, there's equity on both the boys and girls side. This year, we're up to about 100 uh, tour members that got to travel to four different venues around the country play in two-day tournaments. Uh, we had a local qualifier for uh, kids who were in, in whichever region, and they all kind of competed uh, through those tour stops. And then there's a Curry Cup out in the Bay Area where we brought the top 12 boys and the top 13 girls out for the uh, the, the, the tournament, or the, sorry, the championship tournament. And uh, scholarships have been awarded. Everything's free of charge for, for the kids to, to come to each event. We have some amazing sponsors and supporters. Uh, KPMG was the title sponsor this year who've really shown up in a meaningful way to give these kids a first-class experience. And a lot of kids are left behind in this age range where, um, you know, they can't afford to go to all the different tournaments. They haven't had the, the, uh, the same kind of runway to qualify for certain events. And so uh, we've had – two or three in our first year and hopefully a lot more they're going to get college scholarships out of you know out of the exposure that they've had through the tournament or sorry through the tour and you know we're just getting started trying to take it international next summer uh, hopefully have kind of an introductory tour stop over and uh, across the pond in Europe and eventually kind of grow uh, the same format overseas and this is a long way to answer what it really is but the biggest thing is that golf is such a vehicle for change not just in the playing perspective like the competitive golf element can take kids to college scholarships like I said you know further their educational experiences networking all the while we're trying to teach them you know workforce skills and character development skills that can help them uh, prepare them for wherever they end up we obviously the north stars to get uh, as many, uh, as much more representation on both the LPGA, PGA tours, international tours. But meanwhile, we know that not everybody's going to make money playing this game. So if we can get them in the right rooms through golf, like that's going to change lives forever. 
Can you give people at least an idea that are not familiar if they don't have kids that play AJGA or didn't play AJGA themselves or kind of kind of give people an idea of what the pipeline into competitive golf looks like and what the hurdle is to clear for, you know, young, young, young people of any of any race or, or color playing golf growing up? Yeah, I mean, the introductory phase is actually really solid right now. There's um, obviously everybody, most people who know golf know have heard of the first tee. Uh, the PGA of America has great programs, the PGA Junior League, and that's they've done a great job of trying to get clubs in kids' hands early. Uh, there's an organization called Youth on Course that does a lot of amazing work to kind of be the bridge of, okay, kids are interested in the game. They go to the driving range. They go to the first tee uh, programs and their, their sites, but then they want to go play, and you can't afford green fees. They can't afford to go to different places, and so they subsidize that effort uh, to get kids on courses. But from, you know, let's call it from eight years old, maybe nine, eight, nine, ten to, you know, 17 when they're trying to become, you know, college ready. It's an expensive journey. It's a, you know, obviously we know golf and, and equipment, uh, travel, you know, lodging, uh, registration fees. Like they're amazing tournaments. And if you can afford to do it, like it's it's such a rewarding experience. And, you know, there's so many different success stories of people who have gone uh, both, you know, young boys and girls have gone through that program. But if you don't have that access, you don't have that know-how exactly to your question, even from a parent perspective, if you don't know where to send your kids who are passionate about the game and you obviously can't afford to uh, to keep up that pace, like that's where a lot of kids get left behind. And so we're trying to, you know, be support and be you know, resources in that window. And like I said, there's so many talented kids that get a club in the hand early. You see that light, you know, kind of that light bulb go off uh, and what do they do from there and for us that's a that's a huge uh goal of ours uh to kind of answer that question our final clip on this year's medley episode number 768 with the one and only lee trevino a absolute bucket list guest uh probably number one on my list for quite some time a podcast that will i think always be first ballot nlu hall of fame episode Spent over two hours with Lee in person. Uh, it is impossible to articulate how great of a storyteller he is into his 80s. Hope to get to do, get to do another one of these with him someday. But uh, if we're going to relive one of his countless stories, it is this one. Well, what happened at the 1968 PGA Championship? Uh, I believe you were you were drinking on the Saturday night, and then something happened with some Gatorade. <laughs> this story is incredible. Well, I should have won that PGA. We're playing Pecan Valley in San Antonio. And I've got a condominium right next to the clubhouse because they got the, they had the, the the condos there. And uh, a guy by the name of Bucky Woy at the time, his his son is is a big agent for some of the ball players and stuff now. But his dad was fan, fantastic guy, and he was a go getter. He was a type of guy that you could kick him out the door, but he'd climb through a window. You know, he, he didn't take no for an answer. We're sitting there and they're partying in the living room. Well, I got to get to bed because I'm 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 there pretty close. You know, I'm a shot back or whatever it was. I might have been leading or tied. So anyway, so no, I wasn't tied because I finished before the other guys. And so maybe a couple of shots back. I can get the answer for you right here. Third round, you were uh, two shots back. Yeah, I, I was tied for third. Yeah. Right, I was a couple of shots back. And they're all partying everything. All of a sudden, a guy comes through the front door with a case of Gatorade. And nobody knew what the hell this was. Gatorade, what is it? He said, well, it's a thing that they did in Florida or Florida State College. And they did it for the players and to 
get hydrated and all this bologna and say, okay, I tasted it. I said, hell, this is pretty good stuff. So now we're drinking tequila. And they said, well, how is it if you mix it with tequila? And the guy says, pretty good. So they, we started mixing it with tequila. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. So he's got drained. So I said, man, I said, I said, I'm, I got to go to bed. So it was about midnight. I'm not going to play till 1 2 o'clock. So all of a sudden, I wake up about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'm thirsty, boy. I am thirsty as I can be. And I see this, this kind of this pan, you know, that, that you'd boil eggs in or something, and, and it's in the refrigerator. And it's got Gatorade in it. And I said, oh, shit, I'll drink that. And I chug-a-lugged that stuff, and it was full of tequila. <laughs> Well, I, I'm right back where I started. <laughs> I'm right back where I started. And it was 108 degrees the next day. God damn, I don't know how I ever finished. I, I, it was the worst. I just, silly stuff. Silly stuff. What did you shoot that final round? God, it wasn't good. Let me see if it's... 75, maybe? Uh, let's see if it's in there. You didn't finish in the top 10. No. no so you fell back. I don't know what you shot. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm still out there. <laughs> And with that, the 2023 Holiday Medley episode is at an end. Thank you so much for continuing to support what we do here at NLU from our entire team. We hope you and your loved ones have a wonderful holiday. Cheers. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. <laughs>